Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that everybody is spiritually prepared to study the Word. A few moments to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are just so thankful for your grace to us that each day you give us what we need in order to make it through the day, and you have provided us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that we might have the resources we need to live in a way that glorifies you and that we can demonstrate the truth of your word and the truth of your plan and be witnesses both here on earth as well as before the angels. Father, as we continue to study in Hebrews about the Old Testament saints and their uh, life of faith as they trusted in your revelation to them and in the promises you made to them, may we be strengthened in our own spiritual life as we uh, study them, recognizing that they set patterns and precedents for us in terms of the faith restoration. And Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and we are down to uh, verse 23. And we'll just pick up a little bit to review some of the things that uh, went over last time to kind of get brought back up to speed and then hit a couple of new things. I want to make some comments I left out last time. I want to make sure uh, make sure I cover. Back in Genesis chapter 15, in the Abrahamic covenant, God had promised to Abraham as part of the covenant, he had made the comment that there would be a time when the descendants of Abraham would be out of the land. He had just reaffirmed the promise to give Abraham the land. And in verse 13, he says that the stranger, that the, his descendants would be strangers in a land that was not theirs and they would serve there for approximately 400 years. This isn't a precise number. It just gives a round number. And then afterward, they would come out with great possessions. This, of course, refers to the time in Egypt after 
uh, Joseph and his brothers moved down there with Jacob, and then uh, they were there for 400 years, leading into the period of slavery when a new Pharaoh came into uh, came into power that, as the Scripture says, did not know uh, Moses. And this is something that has always intrigued people trying to discover just who the uh, Pharaoh uh, Pharaoh of the Exodus was. And last time I looked at a little bit of this, and this is the uh, list of the 18th dynasty that I put up on the screen last time. And it is generally assumed that it was during this time period that uh, the exodus occurred. This was a time of Egyptian ascendancy of power, especially during the time of Thutmose III, uh, who was had a co-regency with his uh, with his mother, Hatshepsut, and also during the time of uh, Amenhotep IV, and later on in this in this dynasty. Uh, last time I pointed out that. Even though there is a traditional or conventional Egyptian chronology, it is not at all certain. In fact, if you go out and you do a little research on the Internet, you will find that there are a number of other uh, folks who have done work on these chronological problems, and there's even a few that will put the Exodus as early as 1520. Now, these are not coming from a liberal viewpoint. They're those who are just trying to wrestle with the numbers because after about anything earlier than 700 B.C. uh, really isn't as set as the museums and the archaeologists and the writers of the textbook would like uh, us to think. But most of the time when you pick up a book on the Exodus, you pick up a book on any number of topics, they will identify... Uh, Thutmose III as the, as the Pharaoh who uh, banished Moses, and at his death Moses was able to come back, and Amenhotep II then would be the Pharaoh of the, of the Exodus. But as I pointed out last time, there's a number of different problems that we have just in looking at conventional uh, chronology because most, eventual, most conventional chronology would put the earliest dynasties of Egypt before the flood. Biblically speaking, looking at the numbers, taking everything at face value, uh, we have a flood somewhere around 2500 B.C., and conventional dating would put the first, uh, first dynasty in Egypt around 2900 B.C. So you have this problem of about 387 years or so uh, that where you have an Egyptian civilization before the flood occurred, which would not uh, take place. The flood would wipe out any evidence of it. So that's part of the problem. And then I went through this slide showing that uh, these are some of the bedrock dates that people go to. 664 B.C. is um, a date re- related to Ashurbanipal's invasion of Thebes, and that's a set date, 925 is a time when Shoshank uh, I invades uh, Israel, 925 B.C. This is a time that is often, uh, he's equated with the biblical Shishak, but there's problems with the names there, also calendar names, other things of that nature. So we're just not certain who the, um, or, or what these dates are, and we can't ha- really hang anything there. 
And then I developed this little diagram just to show that if there's any change whatsoever and these individuals are not at the time that they are thought to be in terms of the conventional dates, which are the numbers in white, if there's just the least little shift, then they move off to the, they further down the line, off to the right, and they come after. Now, this is a, a chronology that is similar to the one that, that Emmanuel Velikovsky, some of you have listened to Charlie's Framework Series, you've heard him refer to uh, Emmanuel Velikovsky, who wrote back in the 40s and 50s, had some really fascinating, interesting uh, things to say about chronology. And in his view, uh, the 18th dynasty came le- so much later that Hatshepsut would be at the time of Solomon, and he believed that Hatshepsut was the queen of Sheba, and he may, argues a very, uh, what seems to be a very convincing date. One of the things to note about Velikovsky's approach was he basically was thinking that there, because of, uh, uh, in, in Egyptian chronology, instead of seeing the dynasties all one after another, uh, certain dynasties overlapped or were simultaneously. You'd have a northern, you know, an upper, uh, or a southern, uh, kingdom located in, in the delta and then a northern, or I'm getting reversed there, northern kingdom in the delta, southern kingdom uh, further up the Nile where you had two dynasties at the same, same time, such as the 21st and 22nd dynasty overlapping, and instead of the 22nd dynasty following the 21st dynasty, they ruled at the same time. If you had a number of situations like that, then you would actually have a situation where traditional or conventional Egyptology would have as much as 500 years too many in their chronology. And so you take 500 years out of that, that uh, uh, conventional chronology, you, would, you end up putting a, a scenario similar to the one I have on the screen. Now, part of the problem I have with that approach, and that was revised by a man named David Roll in a book that came out in the 90s called Pharaohs and Kings. Discovery Channel had a a great little series on it, and there were two or three others who came out of a Velikovsky, sort of a Velikovsky study group in the 70s, and they realized that the 500 years of Velikovsky was just too much, and they would, uh, there were two or three others that came up with alternate schemes, but they would say there were around 250 to 350 years that were added to Egyptian chronology that needed to be taken out. Part of the problem with that is that if the uh, if what happens at the Exodus occurs as the Scripture says, and I believe it does, then you have a complete destruction of the Egyptian uh, uh, army, you have a complete destruction of their complete infrastructure that wipes out their families, wipes out their herds. They're just economic, social, political, and military devastation that they don't recover from for three or four hundred years. So if, if this is the scenario, then you have Amos and Hatshepsut and Thutmose coming on the scene with a tremendous amount of Egyptian power way too soon. So they would be coming in during the time of the period of the judges, and it's not until uh, late in the period, and not really until you get to the time of, of Solomon, that Egypt is mentioned again 
after the Exodus as a significant power. Egypt isn't mentioned at all during the period of the conquest or during the, the period of the judges. And that would indicate that they, had, they, they were uh, wiped out. So the point I'm trying to make is that there are just problems with uh, history and archaeology as it's put together conventionally, and that's because of a number of factors that have, that influence secular archaeologists and historians in much the same way that these same presuppositions affect evolutionists and others who deny the uh, accuracy and literal uh, value of the scripture. And they start with the evidence of archaeology and they start with the evidence in the rocks and they try then to make the Bible fit what they think they have found historically rather than starting with the scripture as the absolute pattern and then working from an absolute standard to uh, to the data. So it's the same problem you have with the, uh, basically with the charismatic Pentecostal movement is that instead of evaluating the uh, experience by the Bible, you're evaluating the Bible by your experience, except in this case it's your experience with the rocks and the remains that are found uh, archaeologically. And if you look at archaeological, on the data from archaeology, it would appear that the Noahic flood could not have occurred any uh, uh, any later than about 4,000 to 5,000 B.C. because of the way they date the various levels of a civilization that they found in the Middle East and, uh, and other places. And when I was in, uh, in seminary, I remember sitting down and having a lengthy discussion about this with uh, Al Ross, who at the time was the chairman of the Old Testament Department of Dallas, and Al was one of those uh, brains that they often produced at Dallas, had his doctorate from Dallas and his second doctorate from um, Cambridge, in, uh, and he had written his doctoral dissertation at Dallas on the Table of Nations in Genesis 11. So that was his specialty, all of the genealogies and everything. And I had raised the question, are there gaps in the genealogies in either Genesis 5 or Genesis 11? And he said, well, on the basis of exegesis, there can't be gaps. It's a locked, it's a locked genealogy. Whenever you have numbers that so-and-so lived 130 years and begat so-and-so, and then their, their son lives 85 years and begats the next generation, those numbers lock down. You can't, even if you're moving, you're skipping a generation between father and son, it's really father and grandson, it still has to occur within those, those numbers within 130 years or 80 years. So there can't be gaps there. And if there are no gaps in the genealogies, then you end up with a creation date of the six days of creation in Genesis chapter 1 somewhere around 4,000 to 5,000 B.C., just as uh, Usher developed it back in the uh, 17th century. And Usher was one of the most brilliantly educated men of his his day. Now, his name is dragged through the mud today by uh, many people who reject the young earth view or reject a uh, biblical view of you know recent civilization or worldwide flood around 2500 BC but he took the numbers uh in a in a literal fashion 
So all of this is just to say that when you read, and it's important to read things, just to be aware of the discussions that are going on and that even among conservative biblicists, who try to take the numbers uh, accurately, there's, there are things we just don't know. We, there's more than we don't know than we, than we can be sure of. And last week I sent out an email recommending various articles that you can, and you can click on those links in that email. And if you didn't get it, you can uh, email Doug or me or somebody, and, and uh, I'll send it to you. And these are articles that are written by the... Um, um, it's called the Biblical well, Associates of Biblical Research, and this is a group that produces a journal called Bible in Spade. And I'm going to click on that and see what happens. I tried this earlier, and it worked. But here, well, I'm not online. Why am I not online? Let's see if it'll. Ah, there we go. Okay, now we'll... There. Okay, here is the uh, website page. Flip that up here. This is an article by Douglas Petrovich. I'm not familiar with who he is on a minute at the second. And uh, the history, historicity of, of the Exodus Pharaoh. And this is just one of the articles. And he argues for... Uh, Amenhotep II as being the Pharaoh of the Exodus, and he also believes that he was uh, was not killed in the in the Exodus event, whereas one of the other uh, articles here by Bryant Wood on recent research on the date of uh, the Exodus argues that he um, that he was killed. So that just shows the difference. And these guys are very conservative, and they produce really great articles about a lot of different things, and you should be familiar with it and bookmark it on the Internet and go look at some of their articles. And I have mine set up with an RSS feed, so I get the, the things they post every week and can uh, keep up with things. And this is a good article dealing with the different issues uh, related to the date and the setting of the Exodus, whether it's a late date, which is the liberal view with Ramesses, or whether it's an early date, some of the different things that are there. But both of them will argue for a conventional, pretty much a conventional Exodus, I mean a conventional Egyptian chronology. Now what's interesting, if you read through this article, one of the things that he points out is that later on in history, past the, and we know this and we'll see it when we get into uh, a little later on in, in Kings, the pharaohs in the Old Testament are named. You have Pharaoh Necho and a couple of other pharaohs that, that are given names. But in the Exodus account, there's no mention of the name of Pharaoh. He's just called the king of Egypt or the Pharaoh. And what he argues is that in the literature of the 18th dynasty, in the time period of Thutmose III and Amenhotep II, whenever they wrote their uh, war stories, whenever they had gone out and conquered the, conquered the enemy, they never identified the kings. That was how they wrote. That was their style at that time in history, was to simply refer to their enemies as the king of so-and-so without identifying them by name. But uh, 
several hundred years later, three or four hundred years later, that was not the case. And so the fact that the, that Exodus is written in such a way where the Pharaoh is never identified, his name's, no, no one's name is given, fits the time period of the, this midpoint in the 18th dynasty. So it's things like that that archaeologists have to uh, struggle with as they try to figure out um, who the Pharaoh of the Exodus was. Now, one other article that I, I want to point out, make a comment on, because this comes up every year at least once, if not five or six times. And this is the view that the, there's a crossing that's been found down in the, uh, across the Gulf of Aqaba where there's a land bridge. There's a shallow area with a land bridge going from the Sinai Peninsula across to Saudi Arabia, and that there have been a number of things found over in Saudi Arabia that indicate that this was, is where Mount Sinai was, and this is where the uh, this is really where God gave the law to the Israelites and where they crossed the Red Sea wasn't on the, uh, on the western fork, but the eastern fork, which is the, uh, uh, of the Red Sea, which is the Gulf of Aqaba. And Gordon Franz is, uh, I know him. I've met him, uh, many times. He usually goes to pre-trib. He is, uh, he actually got his undergraduate training and his close friends with Steve, Dr. Steve Austin, who's going to be our evening speaker at the Chafer Conference in a couple of weeks, and they have known each other for uh, 20 or 30 years, and Gordon has written a number of articles that I've read over the years and have always appreciated. He's an excellent scholar and archaeologist. Uh, last year, he was heading up the project in Jerusalem where they were sifting the remains of uh, all the the rubble that uh, had been torn up and taken to a dump from by the Arabs when they were doing uh, when they were excavating and building out this underground mosque up on the Temple Mount, and we had hoped to uh, go and volunteer and spend part of a day helping to sift through the rubble looking for remains. And it happened that the the day that we had available was a was a Shabbat, and so uh, his team was off on that day, and so they weren't they weren't working. But this is a, a very good article, and you've probably seen this email come across. I see it, like I said, anywhere from one to five times a year where you have these pictures of, uh, of chariot wheels and maps and everything, and it describes the fact that actually they found these remains, and they haven't. And it, it goes back to a uh, Seventh-day Adventist uh, adventurer, by the name of Ron Wyatt, who has been discred- who is discredited by the Seventh Day Adventists, he's been discredited by every legitimate uh, archaeologist, and he claims to have found the Ark up in a certain area in northern uh, Iraq, and he's made a number of these other claims, claimed to know where the Ark of the Covenant is, and all of these things, but uh, of course nobody has ever seen the real evidence for that. And then there were a couple of others that came along, a guy by the name of Bob Kernuki and uh, someone else whose name I can't remember. But this stuff gets recycled every uh, every couple of years, and I always have to go back. I keep a bookmark of this particular article, and then I start emailing it to everybody. Don't listen to this. Don't pay attention to it. Read the article. This isn't uh, this isn't good archaeology. So this this is a a good article to have and to read to see some of the issues that are involved in this. 
Okay, I think that's all I wanted to say about that. Now, when we get into Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, there are five events that are emphasized by the writer of Hebrews in, in Moses' life as he is illustrating his thesis that it is by faith, by, a, by trusting in the propositional revelation of God, where God has made a promise, a specific statement, by trusting in that promise of God that the patriarchs, the Old Testament believers, uh, hung in there, they were steadfast, they endured, and they did not grow weary and fall out, uh, fall by the wayside. They were not uh, tragedies on the on the spiritual road to, uh, to, to honoring God. There were times in all of their lives, sometimes many times, when they were failures, but at key points they trusted in God. Now, the areas, the two people that are emphasized the most in this chapter are Abraham and Moses. And the interesting thing, in, if you read through the original in the in the Greek is that the writer gets a little more excited as he is developing uh, Moses. The sentences become shorter, his uh, clauses become a little terser, and he is you can tell that he is building to a uh, crescendo in his argument in the evidence that he gives. And if you take uh, if you look ahead a little bit. By the time we get down to verse 32, he runs through Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets all in one verse. So he's, he's speeding up as he is uh, dealing with his particular subject. But before he gets to the where he just throws out a, bunch, a list of names, he's going to go through these five events in, uh, in the life of Moses. The first doesn't have anything to do with Moses' faith. It has to do with his parents' faith. The second, third, fourth, and fifth have to do with Moses' obedience to God and his trust in God. And I was just I was thinking as I this week as I was rereading the first half of Exodus again, when God told Moses to throw when he had appeared to Moses in Midian in the burning bush and was commissioning Moses to be the deliverer for, uh, uh, for the uh, Israelites in Egypt. And he told Moses that he would uh, perform various miracles. He told him to throw his staff down on the ground, and he threw his staff down on the ground, and his staff turned into a uh, poisonous uh, cobra, viper or of some kind. And then he told Moses to reach down and grab it by its tail. That didn't make Hebrews 11. That would have been the first thing that I would put there by faith. Moses grabbed that serpent by the tail. I, I, that's the last thing I ever want to do is to touch a, a snake. That is not uh, something that I think would be an easy thing to do. So parting the Red Sea, sure. Uh, challenging Pharaoh, waiting on the ten plagues, okay. But, but reaching down and picking up that, that serpent, that would really stretch my faith. That, that's where my test would be. So we begin in Hebrews 11.23 with the birth of Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. Now, this is basically just 
picking up phrases and descriptions about Moses from either Exodus 2 or Acts, uh, Acts 7 in describing Moses' birth. I, a couple of things that we ought to note in terms of translation is the phrase, when he was born, is a translation of the uh, aorist passive participle, genethes, which without the article indicates that it's some sort of adverbial participle, but as an aorist participle, it would precede the action of the main verb, and it's translated correctly as a temporal participle, but they didn't hide him when he was born. They hid him after he was born. This is such an elementary issue, and and many many translations do that. When he was born, they hid him. No, they hit him after he was born. This is basic Greek translation 101. First you're born, then you're hidden. It just makes common sense. So sometimes the obvious gets lost because traditionally something was always translated uh, a certain way. So by faith, Moses, after he was born, was hidden three months by his parents. It is his parents' faith. It is their act of hiding him that is the act of faith and their trust in God. Now, what we have seen in our study of Scripture again and again and again is that the Bible never talks about just some sort of standalone, autonomous, no-strings-attached faith that just is faith in faith. Often you have people who make comments. You, they see a friend or hear of a co-worker going through difficult times, and they'll just say, well, just believe. Just believe what? Just is it just faith that makes you strong, or is it faith in something? What does faith apprehend? Faith always has an object. You always believe something. And it's what you believe that has significance. It's not just the act of faith. So what is it that the parents of Moses are believing? We're not told. doesn't say what it is that they are believing. But Josephus, in his Antiquities, uh, relates that it was the common Jewish understanding that the, uh, God had given a vision to Moses' father Amram, related to Moses being the deliverer of the uh, of the Israelites from their Egyptian bondage, and this is also understood in a number of other are seen in another a number of other rabbinical uh, commentaries. Now, all we have in the Scripture are basically two references to the birth of Moses. The first is in Exodus 2, 1 and 2, and a man of the house of Levi, that's Amram, and took a, as wife a daughter of Levi, Yoshebed. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him for three months. Now this is then re- alluded to by Stephen in Acts seven twenty, where he says at this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. So he is interpreting the word that is translated in the uh, in the uh, Greek Septuagint back here as a beautiful child. He translates that in terms of beauty in relationship to God. The Greek word that is used in the uh, Septuagint translation is the same word that um, same word that Stephen uses in Acts seven. Uh, 20, and that is the word asteos, A-S-T-E-I-O-S. This was a word that had a rich history in, in Greek language. It originally had the idea in classical Greek of referring to someone who was polite, well-bred, 
and who lived in a city as opposed to a country bumpkin. So that was its original meaning, but then it came to be applied to anyone who was attractive in terms of their physical appearance, someone who could comport themselves well. So the focus was on physical attractiveness, and in the Greek world that had to do with physical proportions and things of that nature. But Stephen is using the term in Acts 7 in a character sense. At the time Moses was born, he was well-pleasing to God, indicating that God had a plan and a purpose for Moses. And I believe that because of all the patterns that we see in Scripture, even though there isn't a specific reference to a special revelation to Amram about this son, it would seem that that would have taken place. Every other instance of faith in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is related to faith in a specific revelation and a specific promise of God. It's just that in this case that has uh, not been given to us in, in terms of the specific. So Hebrews 11.23 states that Moses, went after he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. Now, this is important to understand because the connection between faith and fear is crucial. When you have faith, fear doesn't operate. When you have fear, faith is not operational. Faith and fear are mutually exclusive. Because faith is focusing on the provision of God, ultimately the provision of a loving God who has graciously given us everything we need, as Second uh, Peter says in Second Peter one three, everything for life and godliness. That is a term related to the related to the spiritual life. So God has given everything to us out of love. That's why First John says that perfect love casts out fear. Because we understand the love of God and what he has provided for us in his grace, that we can rely upon that by means of faith, trusting in God's provision, and that means that we are not afraid. And we can even pick up uh, poisonous serpents by their tail, but only when I have special revelation from God. No other circumstances will... uh, uh, will work out. I remember when I was uh, when I was a kid at Baraka. Uh, back in those days when we had a youth group, uh, Bob had come to know. Uh, uh, I think his name was John Worley, who was the director of the Houston Zoo, pretty well. And they had a survival night one night, and so they had a thing for all of the all the teenagers. And of course, all the I was about fifteen at the time. All the fourteen, fifteen, sixteen year old guys were down front and. He, uh, Worley had brought a bunch of an- different animals from the zoo, and he was giving uh, demonstrations, and there was this burlap sack down there that was making all kinds of movements. And he reached over and picked it up and dumped it out, and three or four rattlesnakes came out. And, of course, they were, he had them under complete control. But there was a whole group of boys that were right there on that front row leaning over that uh, that that front uh, barricade there who just in one movement sort of elevated back about three rows as soon as they saw those saw those snakes so that was uh typical of my approach to, to snakes 
Bruce Cooper's brother, Bobby, he, you see here every now and then, when we were growing up at Camp Isle, he was the first camper to always find a snake. And he always, by the second day of camp, he always had a, a black racer or a silver racer wrapped around him. I never could understand. There's something wrong with that kind of mentality. Okay. The second event in Moses' life that does relate to his volition and to his faith is then spelled out in the next three verses. This is, relates to his decision not to be identified any longer with uh, Pharaoh's daughter, not to be identified with the aristocracy of Pharaoh, not to be identified with anything Egyptian, but to ide- be identified as an Israelite. Now, this is uh, uh, interesting to see how the writer of Hebrews interprets this in light of what the the event that is alluded to here in uh, back in uh, Exodus chapter three. So we'll have to go back there to look in just a minute. In Hebrews eleven twenty four, we read, "By faith Moses, when he became of age, that's the uh, New King James translation." refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. I remember the first time I heard this passage taught, I must have been, I think I was in college, and this is one of those passages that just ought to hit every one of us right between the eyes. This is a tremendous statement here in terms of Moses' maturity and his understanding of the truth of God's word and his commitment to that truth. That's really what positive volition is. It is more than just a, a casual interest or curiosity in the study of the Bible, but it's a recognition that the Bible is absolute truth, and if it is absolute truth, then nothing else matters, and I need to be completely committed to what the Scripture says. Now, we're all going to fail at times. I can't think of anyone who is probably more committed to the veracity of the Word of God and the faithfulness of God than David, and David certainly messed up many times in significant and, uh, and majestic ways, we might say. But he, un- he never lost his commitment to God. That's why God says he was a man after God's own heart. David was to- totally, completely focused in his soul on serving God. That didn't mean he was sinless. That didn't mean that he didn't make serious mistakes. But when you boiled it all down, that was David's focus. And with Moses, Moses came to this point where he had everything. He had, uh, he had education, he had position, he had power, he had respect. He had anything and everything that anyone in the world at that time could possibly have. He couldn't look anywhere in the world for some, some place to give him more Respect, more prestige, more money, more pleasure, and he had all of that. And then he looked out on his, uh, on, on the Israelites, on his relations, on his uh, ethnic cousins who were slaves in Egypt, and he knew he was so committed to the truth of God's word and the reality of that as a living truth that he would rather 
be, be associated and identified with that no matter what it cost him than to take time to be, uh, enjoy the transient or temporary uh, pleasures of sin, as verse 25 points out. That means that he has a tremendous understanding of God's word and a focus and a strength of will and mental attitude that few people ever uh, ever really have. And that's why Moses was the, the great leader that he was. Now, just a couple of points in terms of the uh, translation and exegesis of the passage. That verse begins in the same kind of construction that you have in, in verse 23, by faith Moses, when he became of age, after actually it's the same kind of construction should be translated after he became of age or after he became an adult. Literally, it is it says, after becoming great. And that is just an idiom for after becoming uh, mature, after becoming an adult, reaching a certain stage, that he uh, made a choice. Uh, after he became uh, an adult, after he became mature, he refused, the uh, New King James says, to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And the word there is the word arneomai. And I learned something when I was studying that today. And one of the sources I went to is that this is the antonym for homologeo. This is the opposite of homologeo. Homologeo means to admit or acknowledge something to be true, and our neumai is to deny that something is true. It's to reject it or to uh, renounce it. And that would be the best idea here is he renounces everything that ha- had come to him by virtue of being raised by Pharaoh's daughter. He just gives it all up. And the way the text presents this in Hebrews emphasizes his volition. Now, the thing that most people go to here, and let's just stop and hold our place in the text here, and go to Exodus chapter 3. While you're doing that, I want to look at one other word that's used here, and that's the next word, uh, uh, which is translated choosing. In verse 25, and this is a uh, another participle, and it it's the word ireo. When I saw this, home, that's an odd word. It means to lift up or to take up, and in the but it's in the middle voice, which in Greek means to make a choice, to make a decision, to elect to take a particular course of action. So. The emphasis here is on Moses making an active decision. And then when we get down to verse verse um, 26, which in the New King James is translated as uh, esteeming, I've translated it down here. This is sort of a uh, corrected or, or enhanced translation. Uh, I translate because he thought because this is a word, hegeomai, which is a word for thinking. It's for reasoning. It's for thinking through to a conclusion. It's a very rational word. He's not reacting emotionally. He's not jumping into something. He's not uh, 
emotionally identifying with his people. He hasn't done a genealogical search and suddenly discovered who his, what his roots are, and now he is going to go live with the people uh, that he belongs to. It's not this kind of emotional thing at all. It is a thought-through, reasoned choice that he makes. Now, when you read most commentaries and you they try to identify this with what happens in Exodus chapter 3. So we just keep your place there in Hebrew so you don't get lost. And let's go back to to Exodus chapter 3. Um, Actually, it would be, it's halfway into chapter 2. Verse 11 says, Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown. Now in the Septuagint, the language there when Moses was grown is the same language that we have over there in Hebrews 11 when he came to, uh, when he became great. So that's, that's what's borrowed, uh, into the text there. This is one reason why people will go to this, this point. When Moses was grown, and we know from other information that he was 40 years old when this takes place. Moses lived 120 years, and his life is broken into three equal periods of 40 years, 40 years, and 40 years. First 40 years, he's a prince of Egypt. The second 40 years, he is in Midian as a shepherd out in the boonies. And then the last 40 years, he is leading the Israelites through the boonies. So verse 11 of Exodus chapter 2 says, Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. So he, this is indicating not a, I think not a single event, but a recognition, an identification of their suffering and the injustice that uh, they are undergoing. And he's, this probably summarizes a process that, that took place as he's coming to uh, recognition of his own identity and who he is in the plan of God. He went out to his brethren, looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way. I want to make sure nobody was looking. And he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So he, by the fact that he's hiding him in the sand, burying the body, indicates that he recognized, in the fact that he looked both ways to make sure nobody was looking, indicates that he knows that what he was doing was wrong. But his this act is not the act of the choice that's referred to in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 indicates that he makes a clear, thoughtful analysis of his circumstances, and now he's going to identify himself with his brethren. This is more of a rash, emotional, sinful reaction to an injustice. They're not the same event. Although what surprised me was how many commentaries I looked at were trying to identify this event with his, with his decision. I think he's already made the decision to identify himself with, uh, the Israelites and then he recognizes his, the destiny that God has for him as the deliverer, but he doesn't have enough doctrine and humility yet to recognize that he needs to do it in the power of God, and so he's going to do it in his own power, and that is why he is uh, starting with this one uh, one Egyptian that is uh, beating this beating an Israelite. In verse thirteen, he comes back 
the second day, two Hebrew men are fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your command, uh, your companion? And this other Hebrew said, well, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you intend to kill us or kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared or be, was afraid and said, surely this thing is known. And so it became known. There apparently were witnesses. Someone saw him trying to hide the evidence. And so when Pharaoh heard of this matter in verse 15, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, if you read through those five verses, it looks as if Moses' decision to leave is not a rational, thought-out decision, but he is simply escaping for his life as a result of a sinful choice and an emotional reaction and his attempt to carry out his uh, role of deliverer on his own. There are two different issues. One is he comes to this decision on his own to uh, fulfill his role, and the second is he gets out of fellowship and tries to do it on his own, and so uh, the result is that he has to depart uh, with the posse right behind him. So he heads to Midian, which is located somewhere in the southern area south of the land of Canaan. Uh, the Midianites were somewhat uh, migratory, and so they're in the, that northern area of the Sinai Peninsula over into the uh, Saudi Arabian Peninsula. And so this is why some people have thought that the that Sinai was over in Saudi Arabia. Actually, it is more in the in the Sinai Peninsula, and it's probably located not at the very tip. I don't have a, well, maybe I do have a map down here at the end to put up here so you can see what I'm uh, talking about. Here we go. Here is the uh, a map here showing the uh, Sinai Peninsula, which is located right here. It's this uh, triangle with the point down at the bottom. This, these two bodies of water that go up on the east side, I mean the west side and then the east side are both part of the, of the Red Sea. The one, uh, the leg here on the right side is the Gulf of Aqaba. And this is the area in here, which is where the Midianites, uh, which were nomadic at the time, this is where they, they lived. The traditional site for Mount Sinai is down here at the very tip of the Sinai Peninsula, but I don't know of a single biblically committed archaeologist that thinks that that's where the real Mount Sinai was located. Most of them will choose one or two of various sites up in the center part of the Sinai Peninsula, primarily because of the distances that are given for the Israelites to travel from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea would be located... Uh, roughly in this area, and if uh, this is the trouble with the uh, one of the major problems with the uh, view that uh, Sinai is located over here in the Sin- in the uh, Saudi Peninsula, is that it would take them too long to travel up to Kadesh Barnea, uh, even from Sin- from the southern tip of the Sinai, it's too far for them to travel in the length of time that the Bible gives uh, in order for them to make it to. Uh, Kadesh Barnea. So the site for Sinai was somewhere in the center of the of the Sinai Peninsula, 
which would place Midian up in this area. So Moses is going to leave from from uh, uh, this area in uh, Lower Egypt, head across the Sinai uh, to the uh, to to the area of Midian. Now back to verse twenty four. Are twenty, twenty five, and twenty five and twenty six. So, if we clean up the translation just a little bit, these three verses are all one sentence in the original. Would read by faith Moses renounced. That's your main idea. By faith Moses renounced his position as being identified as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That's the main thought. He is renouncing everything. Everything else that's in here is secondary. He does it by choosing, verse 25, by choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. He would rather be identified with God than anything else than to enjoy the temporary or the transient pleasures of sin. And that's what sin is. It is... uh, we think that we're going to get a lot of pleasure from it, uh, but it's just instant gratification, whether it is uh, some sort of emotional release of anger or whether it is some uh, other sin of the tongue, such as, well, oh, I just want to gossip about that person or say this or say that and enter into a sin of the tongue, or whether it is some other uh, physical sin. We think that it is going to give us immediate pleasure. And it does. That's that's the thing. Sin is really fun, but it's only fun for a short time. I remember when I was uh, in high school, I went on a ski trip with Camp Penile, and I had a counselor who was a few years older than I, and he was giving a nighttime devotion in the cabin, and he said, he was making some comment, he said, sin is just not fun at all. I said, yeah, it is. Sin's a lot of fun. It's just fun for a short time. And we got in a real argument, went on for the three or four days we were on the ski trip. Five years later, he left his wife for a younger woman. I've always wanted to ask him if sin was fun. There is a pleasure there. The Scripture says so, but it is a transient pleasure. It is temporary. It is only for the moment. And the issue is thinking, verse 26, because he thought the reproach of Christ, isn't that interesting how the writer of Hebrews says this? The reproach of Christ, he's, Christos is the translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, meaning the anointed one. So he has a clear, this indicates that Moses had a clear understanding of his role in terms of the promised deliverer, the ultimate deliverer of Israel. He was the temporal deliverer during the time of the Exodus, but he understood something about a future deliverer that would come. And he thought that the reproach of Christ to be greater riches than the treasure of Egypt, and that was greater treasure than just about anybody we could think of except perhaps Bill Gates or Howard Hughes or somebody in that category. 
So he, he focuses not on the temporal pleasure, but he focuses on the future reward. For he looked, and that's an explanation there it's a, in the Greek, it's not a cause, not, it's not because he looked to the reward, although it comes close to that idea, but it's explanation. How could he do this? Because he's focused on the reward. That's that personal sense of our eternal destiny. It's understanding that we are putting off today gratification for today that may be tremendous in light of what we believe God has promised us in his word that will take place in the millennial kingdom after this life is over with. And so for him, the promise of God is more real. The rewards related to his future destiny, his spiritual destiny in terms of God's plan, was more real to him than all of the tangible items that were uh, that surrounded him in uh, in Egypt and in the court of Pharaoh. And no one had more power uh, at the time than the Pharaoh did. The Pharaoh was the incarnation of God in Egyptian culture. And whatever the Pharaoh wanted, the Pharaoh got. And so Moses, as a prince of Egypt, would have had access to anything that he wanted to satisfy any lust of his sin nature. And yet all of that is set aside because the reward was more real to him than that immediate gratification. And that is, an, that is a real sign of maturity. I remember someone saying one time that the real sign of maturity, you can teach this to uh, any adolescents in your sphere of influence, that what, matu- what maturity is is the ability to postpone gratification. And we live in a world today that basically preaches that we need to have an immediate, uh, immediate gratification of whatever we want rather than learning self-discipline and learning to postpone that. And so Moses, because of his understanding of the plan of God, uh, refuses to be identified as Egyptian royalty, identifies with the slaves, and then he is going to leave Egypt. And this is the next verse, and we'll come back and start there next time in verse 27. By faith he forsook Israel. That just sounds so majestic to forsake something basically means he left. He put uh, Memphis in his rearview mirror, and he headed, for, he headed for Midian. And we'll pick up with that uh, next time, because it, we come to that second half, which is a tremendous statement, for he endured... And the word there is an unusual word in Greek. It's not the word that we normally see for endurance, but it has to do with strength. For he was strong. He was unshakable because he saw the one who can't be seen. Now think about that. That's that personal sense of eternal destiny. He saw the one who can't be seen. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be challenged by this tremendous uh, faith that Moses had, his uh, understanding of your word and the reality of your word and your plan were so much more uh, real and immediate to him than that which he could see with his own uh, physical eyes and that which was before him. And he was willing to set aside uh, the gratification of the senses for now,
in order to put his focus on eternity. Father, we pray that you might enable us to emulate that and to come to a greater understanding and realization of that in our own lives. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.